Okay, I trust you've all found First Thessalonians 4.13. Let me just read this to you. But we do not want you to be un, uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I don't know about you, but, uh, and if you'll remember this or not, but after the first sermon I did in introducing Thessalonians to you, there was a dialogue after, and Laura asked me a question. And her question was, of all the things that you've studied and learned so far, is there anything that worries or concerns you about what you're going to preach about during the series? And I said, yes. Do you remember what I said yes to? Probably not. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. <laughs> you might ask, if you're new to the Christian faith, or even if you've been around for a while, you might ask, what's the problem? What are you concerned about? The problem is because of what many faithful, Jesus-loving Christians believe this passage is teaching about, but which I believe the scriptures um, don't actually address. So, again, this is important because I'm going to come against what is very popular in the mainstream uh, Christianity of faithful, Jesus-loving people. But I'm not going to try to convince you from my own opinion. We're going to walk through very slowly, methodically, and through the scriptures to see if the scriptures will convince you of what I believe this is actually teaching about. Now, in the mainline Christian church, this passage is often referred to as the rapture of the church. What does rapture mean? That at any moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Jesus, without warning, is going to remove the entire church from the world, leaving only non-Christian people on the earth. To quote David Jeremiah, who is a mainline um, teacher on this belief, one, a man actually that I listen to quite regularly and has helped me through many of my own um, theology. I love this guy. But I'll just quote him because he defines it well. He says, The rapture is an event where all who have put their trust in Christ, living and deceased, will suddenly be cut up from earth, be joined with Christ in the air, and then will be taken to heaven. And that's an important part of the rapture, be taken to heaven. Now, for many who believe in the rapture, this is an event that triggers a sequence of events that leads to the end of the world as we know it and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Now, why am I worried still? Because I've been part of the Christian community now for 20 years. This is one area that people are very sensitive about. People get very emotional about this. 
And even though we will talk about end times being a secondary issue, in my experience in dialogue, it becomes a primary issue in the way it's dealt with with people and their emotions. So I come to you as one who loves you, cares about you, and I'm not going to, um, this is not a, an issue that's going to make us have a division in the church. At the end of the day, if you think that I don't handle the scriptures appropriately, we can talk privately about it. We can talk publicly about this in the dialogue, and I'm okay with that. But because, um, uh, like I said, I normally wouldn't be concerned, but because it is, um, again, a secondary issue which people and their emotions make primary, I care about you, and so I come to you with a humble heart in this. I will say this too. What I'm going to show you now is a timeline of the popular view in North America. Some of you will hold this in this church. Now, I say this because I used to hold this. And if you remember at Jeff Rempel's house and Jeff and Nabilene's, I actually taught this to the church. And so uh, fast forward now about seven, eight years, the scriptures have actually taught me, I believe, otherwise. And so I'm contradicting myself from seven or eight years ago. But the Bible has forced me to come to terms with what I could not answer back then and uh, new passages that the Lord's brought to mind. Now, here's a typical timeline. It, David, Jeremiah, people like this will teach us on the radio. So a typical timeline goes that we are in the church age. The, the cross of Christ happened 2,000 years ago. We are currently living in the church age. At any moment, Jesus is going to return. He's going to bring the Christians in this world out of this world. There will be a seven-year tribulation in which all hell breaks loose on earth. Jesus will come back again for a second time. So he's come back once, he's coming back twice. And he will uh, judge the world, then reign for a thousand years in this world, and uh, at the end, uh, eternity basically comes. Those who hold this belief will teach you that 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the rapture, and 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about the second coming. So chapter 4 this week is the rapture. Chapter 5 next week is the second coming. That is what will be typically taught and what I would have taught a number of years ago. Today, I want to demonstrate from the scriptures that these are not two distinct events, but one event called in the Bible, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And so again, I come to you with humility but we have to walk through this. If you believe something different at the end, it will not affect your ability to worship here and my relationship with you or anyone else here. We will not um, have disputes. In fact, I know many of you have talked about this and we're still really good friends, even though we like to go toe-to-toe -to -toe over these fun issues. And remember from last week what God's will is. Was God's will that you have perfect end times theology? It was what? Your character. Your character. It's how you love one another, how you treat one another, how you love the Lord in these things that we talk about. Okay? God's will is your character and how you live a life of holiness. Not if you can cross every T and dot every I in the scriptures regarding this issue. So, I want to make two other points before we get into the text. Let's remember the context as to why Paul wrote this in the first place and what his purpose was in reading or writing. 
he actually wasn't even trying to address anything to do with this, really, in terms of a timeline. He was not trying to uh, help them get a strong doctrine on end times theology. That was not his intent. Remember what the New Testament outlook was on the return of Jesus. When you lived as a, a New Testament Christian 2,000 years ago, which we should still be living now, by the way, they believed that the, the return of Christ was absolutely imminent. The apostles had taught them that. Now because of this, they had no room, like absolutely no room in their mind that anyone would die before he came back. So if apostles come to this church and start teaching you, they'd say, you know, Esther, Roger, Leona, Josiah, that Jesus is coming back any moment. So you're living, you're, you're only a few months old as a Christian community. What are you going to believe? Every night you go to bed, you're like, am I going to wake up tomorrow? Or am I going to be with the Lord? Right? You're thinking this. You, you believe as someone who's alive that you're going to spend time, eternity with the Lord in glory. But what you don't have room for then is what happens to those who die before the Lord's return. Because you don't even think in that category. And so the problem in Thessalonica is some had died before Jesus had returned. And so they were worried about their fate. Had they missed the opportunity to be united with Jesus at his coming and be part of the resurrection and the future kingdom? Why say all this? Because Paul was trying to address this question and nothing more. That's the only question he's trying to address. What happens to those who die before his return? Now, the second point I want to make is this. Remember who the Thessalonians were. At the time of their writing, they're a newly formed Christian community only a few months old. They are not scholars. They're not deep theologians. They're regular people like you and I. What Paul wrote here was never meant to be complicated, but to provide comfort and peace to a troubled community. Read verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And the comfort was this, that there was a future bodily resurrection for all those whose faith was in Christ Jesus, dead or alive, at his return. What was intended for comfort, we as a Christian community in North America, have, North America have made it complicated. What was intended for comfort, we have complicated. And so I want to bring you back into the original understanding of what Paul was trying to deal with and what he's trying to address in this community. So with all this being said, now we can read verse 13. I should have cleaned my glasses before I started reading. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. You'll notice here that Paul is concerned about the Thessalonians. 
he says, I don't want you really to, um, to um, uh, grieve as the rest who have no hope. Now, he uses the term here for death as the word asleep. It's a euphemism. Death and asleep are interchangeable in the New Testament. In Acts 7 and verse 60, you may remember this, Stephen was stoned. And in verse 60, when he took his last breath and, and died, it said there that Stephen then fell asleep. In Matthew 9 and verse 24, Jesus came to a man's house named Jairus, whose daughter had died. When he walked up to the girl, he described her state as being asleep. So the word asleep and the word death in the New Testament are interchangeable words. So Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians then in this first opening verse was that there's hope in death. He says, Do, you don't have to grieve as the rest who have no hope, as opposed to you who do have hope. Now, this is important because look at what really Paul's saying to them. He wasn't telling the believers there that they were not to grieve. He didn't say, it's shameful for you to grieve or it's wrong for you to grieve. Paul understood that losing, the life, uh, losing loved ones was painful. Even if we know that there's, life is secure in Christ. The grieving process in the Old Testament was very interesting. In the Old Testament, as a family, if you lost a loved one, you were given seven days off of your work and different routine to grieve. If you and I lost a loved one and we had a job and we lost a loved one on a, on a Thursday, you'd have to go back to work on Monday unless your boss was very generous and gave you that time off. But they may not have to give you that time off. In the Jewish culture, you get seven days straight to mourn the loss of a loved one. If you're a great leader such as Moses, you were given one month off as a nation to grieve the loss of him. Seven days to 30 days for grieving the loss of a loved one. It's biblical, God-honoring to grieve the ones that we lose. However, Paul does say the outlook, though, can be and needs to be different from those in society. He says, you are to grieve, but may your grief not be as those who have no hope. He's describing the, the secular society, those outside of the Christian faith. They grieve differently and because they don't, they, like, you know, this world, all they've got. And if you believe that there's no life after uh, death, if you have that viewpoint too, this is it. This world's it. And so it's an unrecoverable pain to lose the life of a loved one. But Paul's saying, if you're a believer, you can grieve, but do not grieve like the secular world. There is hope beyond the grave because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. And so look at where Paul puts the emphasis. He's going to tell us where the hope comes from and where the hope is to be placed. In verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
Paul's confidence, his hope, was purely found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul was really saying this, if you don't believe Jesus died and rose again, there is no hope. If you have hope though, it means that the hope is in the fact that he died and resurrected. Now the question would be, why, uh, why is Paul so certain of this? And why is he putting so much emphasis on the death and resur- resurrection of Christ for where our hope comes from? 1 Corinthians 15 actually um, is a fantastic passage that deals with this. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians about the resurrection. He says, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then, you no, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of people most to be pitied. So, so Paul's saying this. If you don't believe in the death and especially the resurrection of Jesus, your their preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. And it's futile because you're still in your sins and you're to be pitied. I don't know if you remember this, but I had Elijah come up and do a demonstration a few months ago as to why this is so important. But if you're anything like me, I often have a short-term memory, and so you won't remember what Elijah and I tried to model to the church a few months ago. So let me just go through why the resurrection is so important and the death of Jesus. In Romans 6, 23, it tells us that we die because of sin. We die because of sin. The scriptures speak of death in two ways. Death of the body, but death of the spiritual life. There's a separation from God. So death includes not only the physical life, but spiritual life. The issue is, God wants a relationship with us. So he has to make a way to repair what man is broken. Sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy, perfect God. Enter Jesus. Jesus comes to the world sinless, enters the world sinless, lives a life of sinlessness. So when he dies on the cross and his body is put in the grave, death cannot be his final outcome. If the wages of sin is death, the only way to defeat death is to be sinless. Jesus didn't die uh, for his own sin, did he? He died for ours. So when he's put in the grave, his body has to be resurrected because the penalty of sin can't be appropriated to his situation. Let's put it another way. If Jesus had not been resurrected, then it would have meant that he must have had sin in his own life, which meant when he died, he died for his own sin and not for ours. If he died for our, didn't die for ours then, he could not be the substitute that God had promised. That is why when we put our, if we were to put our faith in him, there will be no forgiveness found for us. 
If he was a sinless man and didn't bodily resurrect, our faith in him would have given us no forgiveness. He could not have been the substitute for us. Our, and that is why Paul turns around to the Corinthians says, and says, what's this talk about no resurrection? If you don't believe that a human being can be resurrected, then what was Jesus resurrected for? You have no hope after death. And your Christian faith that you are proclaiming is futile. And you're still in your sins. This is a really powerful argument for Paul. And I'd love to have been part of the Corinthian audience after that because they probably were like, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe the implications of touting in the Christian church that resurrection was not a possibility or necessity for, for a Christian person. Paul had to correct this issue. So Paul's point in verse 14 to the Thessalonians was really this. The reason you don't have to grieve as those who don't um, know Christ is because that through Christ's death and resurrection, your loved ones who have passed on and have died before his return are assured of eternity when Jesus comes back. Not only do you not have to worry about missing the resurrection and missing his return, those who are dead are prioritized in the order of the resurrection. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So notice the order. Paul says those who are dead in Christ rise first. Those who are alive rise second. And by rise, I just mean resurrect. They're resurrected. Bodily resurrection to unite with the soul. Those who are alive will, will not precede those who have died. So not only were the Thessalonians then not to see those who had died as missing out on the resurrection, they were to understand that they were going to be leading the procession, if you will. They're the first ones to receive the resurrected bodies, the first ones to be with the Lord. Only then would those remaining experience theirs. And so notice how Paul sheds light and how this will transpire. First of all, it's going to be loud and noticeable. He will descend from heaven with a shout and with a voice of the archangel and with a trumpet. This is clearly an audible, like a visual experience. But also notice that there's a temporary change in location. Verse 17 then those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. A change from the grave to the clouds in the air. A change in location. Now, here's where it gets fun to talk about these kind of things. I do not believe, and I'm going to walk you through this, that what Paul's talking about is not heaven here. It's not heaven. The Greek word for clouds is not a description of the heavenly realms but the realm in which we live 
The same word is used in Matthew 17 and verse 5 at the transfiguration at the mountain in Israel. Now, mountains there. Mountains in Israel like the foothills in Okotoks, okay? I was going through looking at all these mountains and like we, we hike the mountains like Laurel in what, 10 minutes or something? Maybe I'm exaggerating, but they're, they're not mountains like we have, right? But to them it was a mountain. While Jesus was still speaking uh, at the transfiguration, it says a cloud overshadowed them and a voice spoke to them. So Peter, John, Jesus, they've hiked this mountain and, they're in the, and a cloud overshadows them. So it's this atmosphere, this world. The word air really means the word atmosphere. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 9.6. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. So if you're shadow boxing in this world, are you shadow boxing the airs of the heavens? Or are you shadow boxing the air right in front of your face? It's the, these, these clouds and this air is a reference to this sort of this world in which we live. It's the visible realm, not the invisible. But again, so I don't fall into the habit of what we've done so often in the Christian church, the point for Paul to give this is not to give a detailed description of where they were going, but who they were going to be with. Let me say that again. The purpose of this was not to tell them where they were going, to focus on the air and the clouds. It was to say, who are you going to be with? The dead, he says, in verse 15, or, or, or sorry, verse 17, will always be with the Lord. Go back to your original thought process as a Thessalonians. What's your number one concern? My number one concern is, are, my, are, are the dead loved ones in Jesus going to miss the return and be resurrected? Because they think he, they have missed it. He says, no, no, no. You're always going to be with Jesus, dead or alive. You can see now why Paul says right after that in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. In other words, I'm not trying to complicate this. I'm not trying to make this confusing. I'm trying to comfort a grieving community who is afraid of the outcome of their loved ones. What an alleviation to their tension and anxiety. Not only had the dead in Christ not missed it, a future bodily resurrection awaited all those who are his. That is the point of the text. That is why it's written. So I'm going to end. It's going to take me a few minutes, but we're going to end with this whole issue of this second coming of Jesus. This rapture, second coming. What, what is all this talk? And I want to walk you through the scriptures to show you that, that what this really is going on, going on here is actually one event, not two. The first thing we need to talk about, therefore, is where the word rapture even originates. And I say this because the actual word rapture doesn't even occur in this text or anywhere in the New Testament. Those of you who have been familiar with the Bible, have you ever seen the word rapture ever listed in the New Testament? doesn't exist but it doesn't come out of nowhere in verse 17 Paul uses the word caught up together caught up 
In the Greek, this means harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, which means to catch or carry away. The Latin translation, though, in Latin, the word is rapimur, R-A-P-I-E-M-U-R. So when the, when, they, when the Latin language, when the, when the Bible was translated from Greek to Latin, the Latin word for harpazo was rapimur, which in English means rapture. So caught up is actually the word rapture in Latin, or harpazo in Greek. Now, here's why that's important, and I can't stress this enough. Paul places the event of being caught up with the coming of the Lord. You catch that? So look at verse uh, 17. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's after he says, I want you to know that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep in verse 15. So the coming of the Lord and being caught up belong together in this passage. They're not two separate events. The coming of the Lord and, and being caught up are the same event in this context. Now this word is not only used to describe Jesus' return. Well, I should say this too. The uh, word uh, coming of the Lord, the word coming is parousia, which means presence or arrival. So whenever you see the word coming of the Lord, it's parousia in Greek. Right? It means presence or arrival. And it's not just used of um, uh, the Jesus. In 2 Corinthians in verse uh, 7, 6, this is Paul speaking. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. So the word coming doesn't have to just be in reference to Jesus. It can be in reference to any human being that comes to you. So again, the key though with the parousia, the coming, is that it's, it, that it's a physical manifestation. Jesus is coming, he, he will, it'll be a physical manifestation and experience, just like when Titus showed up. Now here's what's really important. Every time in the New Testament that the word parousia is used, it's interchangeable with the day of the Lord. It's interchangeable with the phrase, the day of the Lord. I want you to look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3. Now we request you, brethren, with regards to the coming of our Lord, the word parousia, Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as it, as it is from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come, let no one in any way deceive you. 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? The word parousia, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is really, really important. We've got the word parousia, the coming, always linked to the day of the Lord. They're not two separate things. They're one and the same. Now, why do I bring this up? Look at, with me now at our passage in verse 15. He says, those who, um, for this what we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Flip with me now to chapter 5 in Thessalonians. 
Look at verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will, will come just like a thief in the night. Every time the word parousia is used, it's linked to the day of the Lord. In chapter 4 and chapter 5 then, he's not switching events in chapter 5. He's continuing on with the same subject matter as he is in chapter 4. They're not two separate days. It's one event. Now with this in mind, I want someone to read out loud who has the NIV translation because it's the middle, right? It's not the easiest. It's not the most complicated. Who's got NIV who wants to read Matthew 24, 26 to 31? So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Doesn't that sound like 1 Thessalonians 4 language? What did Jesus say himself? When I come, I'm going to come with a trumpet, with the angels, and with a shout. And I will gather the elect from the four corners of the world. What does Thessalonians say here? When the Lord comes, those dead and alive are going to resurrect with a shout, with a voice, with a trumpet. And the caught up together is the same as being gathered together. It's not the same Greek word, but the principle is the same. It's to be with Jesus. It's the same language. And everyone agrees that Matthew 24 is the, uh, is the second coming of Jesus, not the rapture. And if they don't, it doesn't matter anyway because it's the same language. There is only one day of the Lord in the scriptures. It's the parousia, the coming of Jesus. Now, I want to speak to one more thing before we end. There are, and there's many, like, God-honoring, Jesus-loving, holy people that believe that God needs to remove the church from the earth to be protected from the judgment that God's going to bring at that time. And that's why they believe that chapter 4 is distinct from, say, chapter 5, because there needs to be a protection of God's people. But as I've already shown you, chapter 4 and chapter 5 belong together. Because in verse 15, the coming of the Lord is described as the day of the Lord in chapter 5. It's the same thing going on. And in chapter 5, we, de we do see the Lord bringing judgment. So the real question is, does God have to remove his people from this world in order to protect them in judgment? The argument is he has to remove them when God pours out his wrath. Does the Lord have to do that to protect his people? 
You know what's interesting is that in every account in the Bible in which God brings catastrophic judgment against people that are non-God-honorers, he never requires his people to leave this earth to protect them, ever. In Genesis 6, when it was a global catastrophe, Noah didn't have to go to heaven to be protected. God could provide protection for him here on this earth in a global catastrophe to preserve his life. In Genesis 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, the Lord was able to protect them by having angels remove them from the place in order to preserve their life. In Exodus 9 through 12, Israel and the plagues, it was dark in, in uh, the main city of uh, Egypt and light in Goshen where they lived. Like literally, like, with, like there was a distinction, like, you know, between, within the same nation, there was a distinction between light and darkness. Distinction between who got boils and who didn't, whose cattle died and who didn't. God was able to, like, pick out and preserve his people in the midst of ten plagues, which lasted over a year. They didn't have to be removed from Egypt and go to, say, Sudan to be protected or even leave this world to be protected and come back. The righteous people, in, when, when uh, Babylon came and took out Jerusalem and killed them with the sword, God marked his people and preserved the righteous ones. And only those who were, who were rebelled against God were killed. Now why is Noah so important? Because it's a global catastrophe. And when Peter speaks about this, Peter says, just like in the days of Noah when the world was destroyed by a flood, in the end when Christ comes back, he will destroy by fire. So when the judgment comes a second time, it's by fire, not by water. So people believe, well, if it's going to burn up the world, they have to be gone. Well, what's really interesting, can you think of any place in the scriptures where God's people were in a fire and were protected and didn't die in the midst of one. Shadrach, yeah, good Roy. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has his angel and rescued his servants. If the Lord can preserve three people in a fiery furnace and can preserve Noah in a global flood, surely he can preserve us in the midst of judgment at the end of days. It's not beyond him to do that. It's, it's, of course he can do that. And so again, I just want to say just from the biblical text that we see that I believe that the scriptures fully support that the day of the Lord is one single event. And that's important when we get into next week's sermon. When I go into chapter 5 next week, we're not switching topics. Paul is going to continue with the subject matter. And now, remember who put the chapters and verses in place. There was a, a man did that. We put them in place, right? But let's pretend there's no chapters and verses. Pretend they don't exist, I'm going, and it's a letter written to you. I'm going to read you this now and see if this flows. 
Let's start at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, that's the times and epochs, brethren. You have uh, no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Does that sound pretty fluent? I think it does. It, it, it's the same letter, the same subject matter. Paul is just continuing on. Now, the main point of this passage was to speak to the original context of why it was written, but I do believe it was important to address that because there is so much confusion in the Christian community as to this type of uh, conversations. And I want my job is to equip you so that when you get into conversations with other believers that you are well-versed in the scriptures and can at least pr provide an alternative understanding if people come to you and want to talk about it. It also helps you prepare in your own mind of how you approach the coming of the day of the Lord and how you prepare for the future events and what you expect to happen. And like I said, though, too, I've said it two or three times, but I'll say it again. I'm currently right now praying with a man in the mornings who's another pastor from another church. And I love that guy and we're good friends. But the other day, he started talking to me and, and, when we're, and he just started saying, well, we're not going to be here. We're not going to be here. And he started going on this language. I never said a word to him. I didn't get in an argument with him. I didn't try to correct him. I just smiled at him, and then we just sort of let him finish the subject matter, and then we started praying together. So again, like I'm, a mid, I'm in the midst of this uh, conversation and around people that differ from how I understand things. But like I said, we're two different pastors in the community praying together on a regular basis. I do not make this a dividing issue. So what do we learn from this? Dead or alive at Christ's return, a future bodily resurrection awaits those whose faith is in him. That's the main point of the passage. Dead or alive, there's a resurrection awaiting. Without it, your faith is futile without the resurrection. <laughs> Number two, as Christians, we are to grieve the loss of fellow believers, yet at the same time take comfort in knowing that their death is not final and that we will see them again at Christ's return. Roger, you'll remember this. Um, Ron Redant's funeral, right? I remember going to Ron Redant's funeral, and uh, of course, in the first few minutes, it's super sad because a guy that you love is gone. But as the, as the service went on, it became this joyous occasion. And there was like a lot of like celebration and hope and even smiles amongst the people. And I remember we sang, It Is Well With her, My Soul, and that's the best, no offense to us, but that was the best I've ever heard it sung in my life was that day, because it was a cappella, and all the elderly people that had, was raised in choirs and quartets knew how to sing their harmonies, and it was, <laughs> there was about 50 evies there. <laughs> It was great, yeah. But yeah, Ron Redance was like, we were grieving the loss of Ron. But it wasn't like those who had no hope. There, there was an understanding that we would once again see him at Christ's return. Number three, 
the certainty of Christ's death and resurrection is the foundation of our faith and hope in death. That is foundational. You take away, like that's why Paul in verse 14 says, for, you know, now read it, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The whole linchpin on the hope that we have is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we need to be able to articulate that to others, especially as we speak to the non-believing community as to why we believe in Christianity. Really important to help our kids understand that. And finally, the Bible records that the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord are synonymous. There is only one future return of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your spirit who uses your word to teach us and who guides us and convicts us and challenges us. Lord, um, we just pray, God, that, um, that you would settle our hearts in whatever we've been sort of challenged in and that we would come to unity over these things and that we would be able to have a, remember that your spirit leads us into, into self-control and patience and kindness. And as we talk to one another, that we always maintain that attitude and uh, respect one another. And as Teresa said, how we love one another is absolutely vital in these conversations. But thank you, Lord, too, for what it actually was meant to teach. And that was that these passages were to provide comfort to a grieving community. Thank you, Lord, that we have comfort knowing that if we've lost loved ones in you, we will see them again. Thank you, too, that if we're going through personal struggles and facing our own health challenges, that we know that this is not the end for us. Thank you, God, for the resurrection, your death, and what that means for us in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.